www.maineboats.com. The time is 9.59 and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Wabanaki Windows with your host Donna Loring is up next. Welcome to Webinaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Webinaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Webinaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. We'll be talking to Stephen Brim- Brimley, director of Penobscot Nation Tribal Court. We'll be discussing what the court does, what types of cases it handles, and uh, in what circumstances, and uh, other little tidbits of information. <laughs> Uh, welcome to the show, Steve, and uh, and thank you for coming. Good morning. Pleasure to be here. Um, I, I always like to start out by sort of laying a foundation. So, if you could uh, just tell us about a little bit about yourself, your uh, your training, and your schooling, or whatever. Uh, that's sort of a long journey, but uh, we only have an hour. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, which many people refer to as the People's Republic of Cambridge. Um, I'm very proud for where I grew up. It's uh, a strong social justice underline um, our upbringing. And what I mean by that is that we saw everyone as as individuals, not, you know, anyone different. Uh, That there were some real strengths that every individual brought to a discussion. And that's carried very much through to my work, which I'll, I'll talk about a bit later. Um, but my, my background is, is very much also formed by my parents. My parents are uh, originally from out west, out in Utah, and uh, native culture, um, art in particular, has been very much in, in my life from day one. My mom was uh, an avid student of uh, n- Native American jewelry, and not in the sense of just collecting the jewelry for jewelry's sake, but real because it was art, it was part of history. There were stories that were told by every piece of jewelry that was made. Um, and that, that was really told to me from day one, uh, that you just don't see things on the face of things, that there are stories, there, there are history that comes with everything. Uh, and again, that comes in a lot to the work that, that I do today. Um, as far as my training, uh, I had the opportunity to go to a very small liberal arts uh, college in upstate New York by the name of Hartwick College. And I uh, was very fortunate and lucky enough to um, be taught by an amazing man by the name of Larry Malone. Uh, I studied economics at the time, and uh, he came from the New School in New York and had a very different perspective on economics than I think what most people do. Uh, was very much about the non-equilibrium of, of economic systems. Uh, we rarely, as we can tell by today, ever see an economy that's in balance uh, so we studied a lot of things outside of balance, what that meant. And in particular, in, in my case, he really emphasized the people aspect of economics. We, the people, make the systems tick. So it was really understanding human behavior, um, how systems impact people and how people impact systems. So I was very lucky in that sense. Um, he focused me on, on studying a lot of the cultural stuff that, again, is very much part of the work that I do. 
Um, I then went on to do quite a bit of work in uh, southern and East Africa, community development work, mostly around environmental issues. Um, really started to see that it wasn't necessarily about the economics, it was about the people again. And found a program at the University College of London um, that is anthropology-based, but looked at ecology and economic development, again, systems, how people impact those systems and vice versa. Um, got my master's degree there and uh, came, actually I, I spent a couple of months in Tanzania doing my master's research and was, was very, very ill and came back quite early um, and decided after marrying my lovely wife, Becky, um, that I wanted to be in the States and that I really wanted to focus on, on working with Native American tribes, coming back to you know some of my, my original interests. And was fortunate enough to uh, have an opportunity to work at Harvard University, both with the criminal justice program there and um, partner with uh, the Harvard Project on American Indian Economic Development. And uh, they enjoyed the uh, project uh, that I worked on, my work that I did for them, and went over there for two years and then uh, set about doing my own consulting with tribes all around the country on a variety of different projects. Um, Along the way, met some, some Penobscot members that I became very good friends with. Unfortunately, one has just recently passed away, Mike Bear, a very dear friend of mine. Um, and had always wanted to work with the Penobscots, and here I am today. That's yeah. the, the short you, story. You, you kept it short. Yeah, <laughs> I try. Good, good for you. Uh, I was a little bit intrigued when you mentioned South, Southern Africa. Now, was that South Africa? Uh, both. I was in uh, Zimbabwe for a year. Um, spent quite a bit of time in South Africa as well, but I was primarily in Zimbabwe working on some alternative, alternative energy projects, uh, solar, biogas, uh, and briquetting uh, project for some of the rural areas in and around Harare. Hmm. Um, th and the reason I was sort of, my ears kind of picked up when you said uh, South Africa was, uh, I, I don't know, what, what year were you in, what when were you there? I was actually there for the election in South Africa, so I was there in 1994. Ah, so uh, are you, have you heard of the Sisulus, or uh, mm -hmm. do you happen to know um, Sheila Sisulu? No, not, no. no. Okay, they're, they're a prominent uh, yep. family there, and, and I happen, she happened to be a personal friend of mine uh, when she was with the consulate in New York, and then again mm. as ambassador. Uh, I just thought I... We might have had something in common there. Just sure, just you never know. It's a small world. So, okay, so you uh, you got involved with uh, with tribal uh, communities, mm -hmm. and uh, and so, what piqued your interest in in uh, working with tribal communities was your your mother's interest, and in that's what started it. Um, but then I, you know, had my own sort of personal connection with um, the history, the culture. Um, and quite honestly, the people, uh, some of my best friends that I have to this day are, are people that I, I met and have worked with out on reservations across the country. Yeah. Well, I know you've uh, worked a bit with the tribes here in Maine. Mm -hmm. And um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, those experiences? Uh, I, I think you worked for uh, Holton Band at one point. Or? I did, yes. Um, I, to back up a couple of years, uh, did a lot of, of work sort of on the periphery, uh, the very early, early stages of the uh, Penobscot River Restoration Project. Um, 
I also uh, worked on a project looking at the feasibility of establishing an intertribal college here. Uh, mm. But yes, uh, w- with regards to the tribe, uh, several, several, several years ago, more than I care to even mention, um, both the uh, Aristic Band of Micmacs and the Maliseets approached me um, to look into the possibility of setting up tribal courts. Hmm. Okay. At the time, neither of those tribes had courts. Uh, and as it turns out, they actually weren't allowed legally exactly. to have courts, but that, exactly. that's yeah. another discussion for another day, right. I think. Um, so yes, I was actually brought on for a period of time to work for the Holton Band of Maliseets uh, after securing some funding to establish a court, in particular a child welfare court for the Holton Band. Uh, as you may or may not know, they have one of the highest proportions of child welfare cases in the country. Um, I think Chief Commander spoke to that when she was on the radio last month. Um, so yeah, I worked f- for them for, for quite some time and um, unfortunately, um, or fortunately for me, uh, got an opportunity to work with the Penobscots, which is a little, a little closer to home for me. Yeah, um, so, okay, so let's, uh, let's move to the, uh, to the Penobscot Nation Tribal mm-hmm. Court. And you are the director of I the am? Penobscot Nation Tribal Court. Yes. And um, how long have you held that position? Uh, I've been officially the director for only a couple of months now, but I've been in the acting director capacity for about 18 months now. A lot of acting there, huh? Yes. So uh, well, tell us a little bit about that. Do you know, happen to know the little bit of history about the uh, Penobscot Nation Tribal Court? Um, I do, actually. Um, and it's actually a very interesting story in the sense that um, at a general meeting in 1979, so this is, uh, you know, even a year before recognition, uh, the nation, much to their credit, recognized the value and importance of having a tribal court. So at the general meeting in 1979, a tribal court was established. Um, The basic foundations for that court were pretty much state laws, um, but there was some quite a bit of wiggle room in there to establish it as it got developed over the years. So, do you have a law degree? I do not. I have a very strong background in criminal justice issues. Okay. Yeah. For some reason, I thought you you had one. No. Um, so, the tribal court gets started in um, 1979. Now, what kind of procedures and uh, there's there's certain rules and procedures and whatever um, in regular courts and state courts. Yes. And, uh, are there Rules and procedures as well in tribal courts? Very much so. Um, and, you know, we pride ourselves, which uh, may sound odd, but uh, we're actually a due process court, um, which some tribal courts are not. And what that means is that, um, you know, we abide by the laws to ensure that the individual rights uh, are maintained. And to do that currently, we follow very much uh, the policies and procedures that are established by the state of Maine. Um, We're currently trying to change some of those to better adapt to the the circumstances on the the island and the reservation itself. But it's very similar to if you were to go down to a district court, same policies, same procedures, depending on the case. Now, also the the lawyers that work within the tribal court system and the chief judge... Uh, what sort of qualifications do they have? Uh, they are, in fact, um, you know, certified lawyers. They have law degrees, uh, and they must be a member of good standing of the Maine Bar Association. Um, we're currently uh, working on establishing our own bar process, 
But as you can imagine, uh, since we follow many of the same policies and procedures that state court uh, uses currently, it's to our advantage to use uh, lawyers and judges who can understand the system. Um, they have the extra burden of, of understanding other tribal laws and ordinances and policies and procedures that we've established. But quite honestly, I think you know a lot of a lot of lawyers uh, that we've worked with uh, have come back to us and said it's one of the most rewarding aspects of their work um, because of the ability to actually problem solve. It's not just abiding by the laws. Um, so we have. I'm very proud to say we have a very good group uh, who are a member of our bar, um, so to say, who can practice in our court. So the. Uh you familiar with the Land Claim Settlement Act? Yes. I hope you are. Yes. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, so as part of that uh, Settlement Act, I understand that uh, law enforcement, the police officers, uh, have to be certified uh, uh, through the Maine Criminal Justice Academy to be hired. Mm -hmm. Now, does this also um, apply to tribal court uh, personnel, is there something there that says that uh, the, the tribal court officers need the same uh, training as state attorneys, or is that something that the court has just uh, adopted? Or that uh, we've adopted to a certain degree, but again, I think I think we hold uh, our employees, our lawyers, our judges to a higher standard. Uh, we expect a lot more of them. And as a result, uh, provide them with additional training above and beyond their standard practice. Um, so we're always looking for opportunities to send our judge judges um, to specific trainings that impact the work that we do in court. How many judges uh, do you have? Um, we currently have eight. We have a, a chief judge and um, seven associate judges who also are part of our uh, appellate board. Panel. And how are these uh, appellate judges uh, chosen? Um, well, there, there's a variety of standards by which we go uh, on, and um, we try to find as much diversity in terms of expertise as possible, um, as we'll probably get into. I mean, the, the types of cases that we deal with are, are pretty wide-ranging. But there's also a, a philosophical um, sort of foundation that we're looking for. And for lack of a better term, it's, it's really people who get it, what we're trying to do in the court. We're not a typical district court. In fact, we're not a district court. But in, in terms of that practice, that philosophy, we're not there to simply apply the laws. We're there to really understand the root causes of, of the issues of why people are in front of the court uh, and try to address those issues as best we can. So in essence, you know, a problem-solving court, but also what, what tribes refer to as a healing-to-wellness court. So we're not looking just for, you know, a, a, a judge or a lawyer that has an outstanding reputation, but someone that truly does understand uh, and believes in what we're trying to accomplish. So a lot of it's reputation. Mm. I, I'm, I'm intrigued by the, uh, the healing-to-wellness court. I, that's the first time I've heard of that, mm -hmm. that phrase. Uh, could you maybe give me an example of that? process. Sure. Um, and the healing to wellness sort of terminology was, was originally applied for what the outside world would refer to as drug courts. 
so a healing to wellness court is essentially a native drug court, but it's the philosophy which I'm which I'm trying to emphasize here and which we're trying to apply throughout the court, and that is that when an individual comes into the court, let's say for a theft, um, there's a team approach and sort of an interviewing process that goes on, whether um, by the team or by the judge himself um, or herself, that really tries to understand why the theft occurred um, and, and what may have been the underlying circumstances behind that incident, whether it was alcohol or drugs, um, maybe it was marital issues. I, you know, there's a wide spectrum of things that we see when, when individuals come into our court. And then really um, bringing in those resources to address those issues. We very rarely, if ever, incarcerate people. Uh, in fact, we use that as a very last resort and oftentimes not for very long. So, you know, it's, it's applying those resources, those services to individuals to um, what we think is the best way to resolve the issue that's in front of us, but also to prevent any recidivism that might occur. Um, as you can imagine, as with any court system, uh, there's a very small proportion of a community that commit the majority of the crimes. And, and we see that um, because we are a small court and, and cover so many different types of cases. We may have an individual in court one day on a criminal, next day a civil, next thing a probate. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Yeah, can you, uh, before you move on here, uh, tell us uh, what types of cases the tribal court uh, hears or can hear? Mm-hmm. Um, Juvenile cases, uh, as long as they're uh, tribal members, primarily on reservation, um, tribal lands, I should say, um, and that there there's a window for that to change possibly, but I, I won't get into that unless we get there. Uh, adult cases, criminal cases, only misdemeanors, again, if they involve um, a tribal member and a Pesquaquati member as well uh, on tribal lands. Uh, we also do traffic violations, uh, so please don't speed on the island or else you'll end up in our court, and that, that can be non-native as well. Um, ordinances, so fish and wildlife game ordinances that the tribe is, was implemented for tribal lands, and also just ordinances on the island, so dog-cat issues, ownership issues. Um, probate issues, we do divorces, small claims, and one of our... Uh, my fastest growing areas, uh, I'm sad to say, is is actually child protective cases and um, child support. The nation has their own child support enforcement agency, uh, and that, that takes up quite a bit of our, our docket and uh, is potentially going to be even more so in the coming years as the tribe takes on more of those types of cases. Mm. Um, how many uh, cases um, in the court do you think... Um you can trace back to alcohol or drug abuse. Uh, th- that's difficult. Uh, anecdotally, I would say you know a very high percentage, um, probably maybe seventy, eighty percent. But I'm I'm just guessing off the top of my head because we don't know. You don't keep those statistics. Um, we try, but the problem is that um, a-, a lot of those issues aren't documented in a way for us to actually tell, except for when we apply this sort of healing to wellness approach. Um, and we're actually implementing a new database management system in the court right now where we'd be able to better track that kind of information. Right now we're entirely paper-based. And that this type of approach hasn't been able to document that uh, in, in the past. So we're only trying to catch up to those trends. 
Hmm. That, that sort of begs a question here. Uh, you're all you're mostly paper based. Now, I, I'm just wondering how many other courts, uh, tribal or other courts, are still paper based. I mean, not many. <laughs> I didn't think so. I, I'm sad we, to say, but I mean, we're we're. Uh, months, if not weeks, away from from launching uh, state of the art digital system that will allow us to not only track case information better, but I think better serve individuals and and more importantly, even share information uh, with our partners and uh, other jurisdictions, most namely the state. It's the same system that all the main DA offices use in the state. So when we uh, call to get background history on individuals, that information they share with us is easily transferred into our system. But yes, no, we are paper-based, and it's it's a problem. It's a very big problem. Mm. Um, now, I, I wonder about... Uh, now, tell me if this is an issue. I wonder about the reciprocity between the state uh, courts and the tribal courts. Um, yes and no, uh, in, in the sense that I think as we've developed the capacity and, and done some education about what we're trying to accomplish, and we've shown some, uh, I think, some consistent success in dealing with cases, particularly around juveniles, I think the state has become more willing to work closely with us. Uh, you know, I've, I've had a couple of situations where I've actually been able to call the local DA's office and they, they've provided information for us uh, very swiftly and with, with no questions asked, um, which has been fantastic. Uh, just to go back to the problem behind the ba- paper-based uh, system that we're currently in, uh, you know, we face the problem that when a judge sits on the bench, uh, as far as he's concerned, this individual that's in front of him is a first-time offender unless, uh, and I've, I've done a little bit of this uh, on my own time, is to do sort of a criminal background check or a history of that individual in our court so we can see trends, how things have worked or not worked. Um, but the, the real issue, and, and this, this is a bigger picture issue, which you could probably answer better than I could, is that you know there are some real concerns about sharing what many of us would consider internal tribal matters to outside agencies. Um, and the council has been hesitant to give me full approval about sharing information the other direction. Uh, there haven't been any requests, per se, from, from outside agencies for, for individual tribal members and their histories within our court. Um, but that day will more, more likely come sooner rather than later. So I think that's something that you know I'm very careful uh, and cognizant of and, and try to respect that, you know, there are bigger issues at hand here. Yeah, absolutely. And um, do, you, do you have trainings for the, uh, for the judges that you, you brought on? Our judges that yeah, we currently for have? for your judges. Yeah. As I said, we're always identifying um, opportunities, especially around the appeal process. Uh, there's some very good uh, native-based or native-focused trainings for judges at the Judicial College out in Reno. They have a whole um, Native American judge training, actually a whole course load for, for Native judges that we regularly send uh, our judges to um, or try to. Uh, unfortunately, many of our judges are private practice lawyers, so they're incredibly busy, which is uh, uh, probably more of a statement about our, our current state of the economy, I guess. 
so they tell me. But we, yeah, we try our best to, to provide as much training as possible. You know, I, I wonder, I know, I know that um, you've been an acting director for how many, how long? Did you About say? 18 months. About 18 months, okay. So during that 18 months, um, was there anything that, that kind of has struck you about the court uh, that rises to the top that really needs to be addressed uh, right off? I mean, is there any... Well, I think, you know, I think we touched on it a bit. And um, <clears throat> with, with limited resources, you know, one of the challenges that I face is to make the court more efficient and to, to do more with less. And that, that was why I really uh, spend a lot of time and energy trying to put together the resources to get this database system in place. Um, uh, so what kind of uh, different programs does the court have right now? Because you mentioned... Uh, this team approach, yeah. yeah. Uh, that, that, was, that was another issue um, that I addressed. Um, I was actually brought in to, to deal with restructuring our, our juvenile justice system that the court uses. Um, so one of the things that was in place uh, in sort of a skeleton version was what's called the Juvenile Advisory Group. And that group has two purposes. One is to really advise the nation on ways to better address juvenile issues on, on reservation. Uh, and the second is, uh, and I, I changed this a little bit, and I think you'll understand why I did this, but was to really use that, that team to address on a case-by-case -case basis the best way to resolve issues when they, they come to us, uh, when they involve juveniles. Again, it's back to that healing to wellness approach. It's about understanding the issues of why this juvenile got in trouble. So it's made up of directors um, from the various tribal programs that are involved with juveniles. Um, so the Boys and Girls Club director, um, the cultural director is involved. Um, we have the health, uh, you name it. I mean, there, there are a variety of different programs on the, on the island that, that are part of this team. And it's not only to, to bring in a wider perspective, but also a community perspective, but also a handful of resources that typically aren't available to a court. So in a way, I'm cheating the resources a bit by tapping into other resources of other, other departments uh, and providing those services that are quite honestly needed for a lot of these juveniles. Uh, and, you know, I, I think we've had some pretty uh, amazing success in dealing with some of these issues. I can't say we're perfect, um, but I think it's it's the right idea. Yeah, I mean, it sounds uh, very creative. I, I think very visionary, and uh, I don't know if I'd use the word cheating other. <laughs> I mean... Because what what happens is, you know, if, if this doesn't get addressed and, and doesn't get fixed, those other resources end up being being spent anyway. Yeah, and, at a higher rate. And I'll get I'll give you a, a great example, obviously without using some names. But um, one of the other things I did was um, we used to have a probation officer, juvenile probation officer, <clears throat> and for philosophical reasons, I didn't really like that idea. I don't like the idea of probation to begin with. So I brought in, and, and this actually came from, from the team uh, in the early, early stages of forming JAG again, was that they really wanted a case manager approach. They wanted someone that could oversee all these resources being given to these juveniles. 
So I brought on two, three, uh, was it, yep, three uh, juvenile caseworkers that are on call part-time, and they're supposed to respond to a juvenile incident as soon as the police come in contact with the juvenile. There, there's a possibility of charges being brought against that juvenile. And that caseworkers really start uh, to get an understanding of what's going on in that, in that juvenile's life and to really start working with the family to figure out how we can overcome these barriers. And they form pretty strong relationships. I could give credit to the caseworkers that we've had. And there was one situation which um, there was a, a young lady that was caught underage drinking at a party with several other, other juveniles. And the caseworker, in the course of trying to determine what was going on, um, you know, had a chat with the mother, and the mother said, you know, she's such a good girl. It's just been... You know, it's been about a year or so that she, her behavior's changed. Something something happened. Um, and the caseworker was very astute and sort of followed up on that, and it turned out that, um, you know, it seems kind of uh, strange, but, it, you know, she followed up on this and, and sort of followed up with the juvenile and with the family, and it turned out that a, a very close cousin of hers um, was brutally murdered up in Canada. Uh, and this girl was facing, not surprisingly, some pretty serious trauma around this because they were very close. And the caseworker was able to, you know, reach out to the team um, and really get some support and therapy for this for this individual. Unfortunately, you know, she got, well, fortunately, she got the therapy, she got the counseling, but unfortunately, it had the result of her coming to the court. But those are the type of services, the resources that I'm very pleased that we're able to, you know, through partnerships, build and, and provide for this girl. And thankfully, we haven't seen her back in court. I hope it stays yeah. that way. I mean, yeah, many times it's like more than just what's on the surface. There's always something exactly. really beneath that's kind of bubbling to the top. But what I'm trying to get away from is just simply applying the laws that would have just punished this girl and then sent her on her way. Oh, absolutely. I think Which that's probably a, would have likely, according to state law, been a, a fine of about $200 somewhere in and around there. And, and, Which they can't. And, and if you don't anyways. address the the root cause, then you, it's right. going to be an ongoing right. situation. Uh, you're listening to WERU Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host Donna Loring. We're talking today with Stephen Brimley, director of the Penobscot Nation Tribal Court. If you have uh, calls, questions, or comments, you can call one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. One eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. Okay, so we're talking about the team approach and uh, mm -hmm. different cases that it, this is it's helped. Yeah, and this is uh, you know an uh, an approach that we're we're implementing in our own drug court or healing to wellness as well. Uh, it's team based approach uh, for an adult drug court, but we're also trying to extend that into other areas of the court where we can really get to the sort of the bottom of the issues uh, and provide those resources. So, you know, I spend, spend a fair amount of time networking and, and working with uh, other directors in and around the island and uh, most recently uh, with Wabanaki Mental Health as well. I'm curious, so um, how many cases do you have in the court in a year's time? <laughs> uh, if you're talking about actual filings, um, last fiscal year, which is, you know, uh, end of or October 1st of 2010 through the end of September of 2011 we had 154 that's 154 new filings uh, our caseload is uh, the actual cases heard are a little bit higher than that um, 
and we probably hear 20 to 30 cases in court every month. And that involves not only these new filings, but also reviews. Our drug court participants have to come in in front of the judge every two weeks, but also child support review cases, child protection, um, placement hearings. Um, so, yeah, we're busy. When when I first got there, we were holding court on average about once, possibly twice a month. Um, in the last couple of months, we've had um, anywhere five or six days a month uh, with at least one hearing. But now we have a, a set schedule of three days per month of court. That's a lot of court. That's a lot of court time. Yeah, it That's is. a lot of hearings and for uh, a small community. Yeah, I often, I often get asked the question, uh, you know, how many people live on the island? And I say, well, you know, there's just over 400. Uh, we don't have jurisdiction over all those individuals. But you have to understand, as I explained earlier, that any one individual can be in our court for several different things. Uh, and that plays out over time. So I guess uh, one one thing that I wonder is, uh, is there any uh, case that sort of stands out in your mind that was uh, sort of unusual that you thought was a strange case? Or uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> They're all unique in their own They're sense, and, and I think that's why I love my job. Um, you know, no day is the same, but several. I think I think that case that that I brought up uh, regarding that that young lady, I think, oh, is yeah. is one uh, in a sad way is is one that stands out in my mind. But I'm I'm particularly pleased with. Um, there's another young lady who um, was facing some tough issues uh, in and around the family, and you know, I think. I think myself and, and the team that I work with were, were very good about, you know, sticking by her, sticking with her, uh, and getting their um, some much-needed help and some attention and some counseling and support. And, you know, I'm very pleased to say that she ended up working at the Boys and Girls Club um, initially as part of her, <laughs> part of her uh, payment to the court, but then ended up getting position at the the Boys and Girls Club and worked there for quite some time. Um, by all accounts, she's, she's doing pretty well. She's coming from a tough place. But yeah, there, you know, there are also several adult cases that... Um, I was going to ask you about adult <coughs> cases. That was yeah. No, I think, yeah. um, you know, my passion, my background has been around juvenile justice issues, so I naturally sort of gravitate towards those. But there are some adult cases that um, that stick in my head. I think one in particular that, you know, I'm working on now in our drug court. Um, this individual has come a very long way. Um, and I'm pleased to say that, you know, he just received his 30-day his sobriety uh, certificate. And that's the longest he's been off drugs since he was 14. And he's now in his mid-30s. Uh, you know, I'd love to take all the credit for that, but there's a team behind me. And, and that's the, the resolve uh, of this individual. I, he, you know, he really had hit rock bottom. But, you know, not, not all of the work that we do are successes, and I think, you know, I, ha I have to be careful to highlight some of those as well. And um, I, I think we're, we're getting better at, at taking those perceived failures as learning lessons, uh, or lessons learned. And, um, you know, we're trying to self-correct as much as we can. Uh, we also have these confines of something called the law that we have to be careful about. So, you know, it can't be too far-reaching. 
but I think we, we do our, our very best at, at using what we have um, to the best of our ability. Yeah. And it seems to me that you also, the issue, the issue in these cases, especially juvenile cases of confidentiality, is mm. uh, maybe problematic. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, what, one of the things, uh, again, is that I think we're fortunate to some regard that a lot of the individuals that we partner with understand the importance of confidentiality and how uh, confidentiality is an important role in that sort of healing process. But at the same time, I think we also have uh, very strong standards by which we go by. Um, you know, we're required to sign confidentiality agreements all along the way. Um, and for the most part, I think, you know, people have, have been pretty true to those. Um, but as you know, uh, and as you can imagine, in such a small community, everyone knows pretty much everyone's business. Sure. And, that, and that's something that, um, you know, I think, I think we need as a, as a team, but also the nation needs to work on, on tapping into that as a, a sort of a strength-based model and using that community, their knowledge, the support, the relations, uh, that sense of community to our benefit. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and, and when I... When I invited you to be on the show, um, you know, I thought, well, the, the general public really doesn't know much about the, the tribal court system or, mm -hmm. you know, maybe don't even know that we have a tribal court. Mm -hmm. um, but also, there's a lot of things going on on a national level right now, uh, reference uh, uh, child uh, sexual abuse and mm -hmm. that sort of, uh, those sort of issues. And uh, I know that... Uh, there are, I've heard, you know, community members are, are concerned with those issues, and some of these things are starting to, to come up. So I guess my question to you about this is, if someone is concerned about a situation uh, of uh, child sexual abuse, what are some of the things or what can they do uh, within the tribal court system? Is there a... a a process in that system? Very much so. Um, and I think w one of the benefits of, of not being a typical court or a district court is that I think you have much more access to information um, than you would elsewhere. I mean, I, you know, I have a, sometimes to my own detriment, I have an open door policy and, you know, I encourage community members to come in and talk to me. And, you know, I'm, I am not a lawyer, as I said. And I have to be very careful about offering legal advice, not only because I'm not a lawyer, but it's it's not legal for me as the director of the court to do that. Um, but there are ways to direct individuals, uh, and what I often do because of these networks, these partners, uh, these individuals that I have the utmost respect for and work with, I often just redirect them to other individuals and, and try to get them, you know, the help they need. Um, you know, Wabanaki Mental Health is, is something that people need to learn a lot more about. It's a phenomenal agency organization. There are so many different resources that to this day I'm still learning about. Uh, and the director down there, Sharon Toma, I hope she's listening, is an absolutely fantastic woman, really cares about, you know, Wabanaki people and has done a fantastic job of building up this organization to help Wabanaki people. So that's sort of my first inclination is, is to send people that way. But, uh, you know, I also have the ability to talk them through options without directing them uh, on a legal path. 
So, you know, I, there's a lot of education that goes on in my job as well. Is it, it, it just comes to mind now. I'm, I'm sure that there's a lot of um, um, inf information mm -hmm. uh, within the, the court mm -hmm. that uh, the community may not be aware of. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm wondering how, is there some sort of workshop or something maybe in the future where uh, they could get some information about what's available? Very much so. Um, you know, the chief and, and council have um, not directed me, but asked me to participate more in community events, gatherings, um, and share what we're trying to do. I try to publish as much as I can in the community newsletter, uh, as much as my schedule allows me to, to talk about sort of emerging trends or things that we're doing, new things. I'm you know, desperately trying to find some time to get up a website so, so people can access that information. That yeah, would be great. Well, you, you know, you say that, and as a council member, I'm saying to you, I need some direction on that because there's been some concerns about sharing, again, information mm -hmm. regarding sure. you know, the forms that we use. Um, I really want to do quite a bit of, um, you know, I want to become much more transparent and accountable for what we're doing, sharing right, kind right, of not, right. not individuals' names, but the types of cases that exactly, we do and, and yeah. things like that. I want to sure. get that out. You know, there's some great tribal courts out there that have fantastic websites, uh, and I find it, I think, partly because I do my job, but also I think it's, it's just a great way of getting, you know, the information out there and uh, building trust, buy-in from the community. Yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of information you could put out there that mm. would have nothing to do with... Uh, confidential yeah. um, issues. But also, to, you know, to make it a little more easy to access the court. Um, you know, some people are hesitant to come in and talk to us because of, again, being a small community. And I think if they had internet access and were able to go online and sort of do some self-educating and, and seeing the policies, the procedures, which, you know, as I stated earlier, I'm, I'm, that's part of my job is to, to redo some of those. And I strongly believe in establishing policies and procedures that anyone can understand. You know, these policies and procedures that are only understood by lawyers doesn't do any of us any good. Um, so really trying to make it understandable to a lot more people. Mm. You know, I remember I used to be a paralegal years and years ago in the tribal court system. Um, and uh, for a while, I uh, part of what I did was to... Uh, do a synopsis of uh, cases, tri mm -hmm. tribal court reporter mm -hmm. sort of thing. Yes. Uh, is that being done now? It's funny that you bring that up. We just had a, um, a training of all our appellate judges, um, and that was brought up. And we haven't done that recently, and I'm ashamed to say we haven't done that recently. Um, but it is something that's in the back of my mind. Unfortunately, on any given day, I, I, you know, I can't even find time to document what I'm doing I, I in know, a given I day. But I, I found those things no, absolutely. Really, uh, really informative. Absolutely, and I think you know that that would be something that I would be more inclined to share with, with counsel, and um, you know, so they can really get a better understanding of of what we deal with on any given day. Um, one of the joys of of this new database system is that it compiles data very quick, quickly and accurately, and we have the ability to send out reports uh, electronically. So for our grants manager, for, for the chief of the tribe, even for council, we can produce weekly, monthly, quarterly reports um, so the council can get a better understanding of the challenges that we face, uh, demands on the court. 
I think that that's been a real eye opener to to a lot of the council and to the chief t- to understand that we've gone from, you know, one day of court up to in some cases five six days a month. They Do don't you have quite any understand. specific court days? Any set days? Yep. Um, you know, around the holiday season it varies, but it's it's usually the uh, first and third Wednesday, um, and occasionally the second or fourth (laughs) again it really depends on on the demands of the cases but yeah it's it's usually the you know first third and fourth wednesday is this an all-day when does it start can be um our drug court reviews start at 8 30 in the morning uh and that's been a trend lately um we're ending anywhere from 4 30 to 5 o'clock at night so it's a long day so during any of these uh, court hearings or procedures or whatever, are any of those open for for the public? Most, most. Uh, obviously, there are some cases that involve incredibly sensitive issues that that people, the general public, are not allowed to be part of. Um, but those are you know well documented on our our dockets that are that are posted throughout the island uh, in various places. Our drug court reviews are are not. Um, we're we're trying to figure a way to possibly make that more public, but I think out of respect for the individuals involved right now, uh, they're not really in a place. And uh, again, because of the small community and some of the history that these individuals have, they're not ready. So we have to respect that. That's fair enough. Yeah. I mean, now you said that you've spent some time in other uh, uh, jurisdictions, other tribal yes. uh, spaces and yes. whatever. Um so was there any of those other states or other tribal community courts that have uh, stood out in your in your mind as maybe a, a model or a program that you'd like to Oh, there are several. Um you know the the be end end all of all tribal courts is is the Navajo Nation. And for a variety of different reasons, uh you know I have a lot of respect for the Navajo Nation not not just because of of what they do, but how they do it. And for those that don't know, that reservation is massive. It's huge. How many do they have? They have about 40,000 or something oh, like that? Oh, it's upwards so. of that, I think, now. But, I mean, they have a very complex but very workable, um, almost like a district court system. Uh, and they've worked all the way up through. They have actually a Supreme Court. And they've done a fantastic job about integrating um, culture and ways of dispute resolution into that system. That's just phenomenal. Um, and I admire that. I respect that. You know, we face some different challenges here about, about doing something like that. Um, but there are also some, some other courts that on, I think, individual program basis are doing some pretty fantastic things. Uh, a lot of uh, drug courts out there on tribes, particularly out uh, Minnesota area, Great Lakes area, um, they're doing some fantastic work about using uh, wellness healing circles uh, and, you know, trying to do what I think we're at the very early stages of doing, trying to get to the bottom of the issues and resolving some things. Mm-hmm. Uh, some great inter-travel courts out in the Northwest as well, which, uh, you know, is perhaps a dream of mine one day for here. You know, when you just said Northwest, that sort of brought to mind, um, I don't know why this kind of pops into my head, but... Um, so one one of the penalties out that way in the court system is is banishment. Mm-hmm. Now, tribal courts have no this tribal court, Penobscot Nation. Uh, is that uh, 
part of, uh, part of your tool? I don't think it is. I think it's council jurisdiction it's, for yeah, that. Yeah, most tribal courts don't have that. It's a council-based um, yeah, penalty. Just, just think of some of the unique uh, um, punishments or unique, uh, uh, what do you call it, fines or whatever. Mm. You, for, for From a Native perspective, uh, in the different, I guess you could call them punishments. Yeah, for for different offenses. Yep, you know, uh, one of the challenges um, that I think we face though is that a lot of these individuals that we're trying to help have a certain degree of disconnect with their community, with their culture, with the tribe, and part of that healing process um, that we've seen, at least anecdotally, is been very successful is reconnecting them. And that you know, there are various ways that we do that, um, but I think that's quite important. I think particularly um, here, where the tribe is so small, and there is such a strong inherent sense of community, that I think that's important. And to even consider banishment, you know, it's like why we don't consider using jail. Uh, I think it would be more detrimental than anything else. But you do have that as an option, though. You jail? Can, yeah, jail time. Yes, most definitely. Yeah, but do you ever use it? Have you ever used Very it? rarely. I think in the time that I've been there, I think uh, only one or two individuals, and those have been on pretty extreme cases, Yeah, where there was actually uh, concerns for another individual's safety. Yeah. And, then and those that's are, typically where we yeah. use it, especially children. Yeah. And that's for... Uh, what's the longest, I guess, someone's been in jail? Overnight or...? <clears throat> no, actually... Um, 30 days. Wow. Uh, and that, again, that was, um, that was a pretty sad and difficult case. And um, I think it was, unfortunately, I have to say, necessary for that individual. Um, I'm very pleased to say that uh, from my own experience, I think it was the first time I've ever seen it being beneficial to somebody. Uh, this, this lady came out, and I think she understood mm-hmm. what had happened. Uh, as a result, she's now uh, involved in our drug court, and um, she's actually away for residential treatment right now. Yeah. But I mean, that's you know that's an extreme case. Uh, that we're but it's an extreme case that came out so far uh, positive. I yes, think. I hope. Yes, yeah. I'll have to get back to you on on what happens. But I, yeah, I'm hopeful. Uh, I'm very hopeful. Uh, you know, I had a lot of contact I worked with her very closely before she went off for, for residential treatment and uh, she seemed in a good place uh, and that's great do you, now do you have any dealings with uh, any of the other main tribes um, not court? as much as I, I would like um, you know I've, I've formed some pretty cro- close relations with the Pesmaquoddy court um, we face a lot of similar issues particularly as it relates to the state um, obviously, I have a natural connection to the Maliseet, um, but that court is not up and running at this time. Was uh, it ever? Was that? Well, I mean, we were at a point where you know we had a judge, and uh, there was a, a hiccup at the state level, uh, for lack of a better term, that prohibited us from actually assuming jurisdiction over any child welfare cases. And that hiccup currently exists still. Um, so there, there needs to be some. Um, clarification or there needs to be a fix a legislative fix regarding that mm, so what what happens at this moment for child welfare cases well the uh, for, that, for, the for the malice for the malice yeah. uh, they do have an ICWA director uh, 
And as ICWA states, the tribe is allowed intervener status. They're allowed to participate in those hearings and make their interests known. Are those hearings, you say those they're, hearings? Are they're they, district court. They're in the district court? Yes. Holton District? Yes. They're not in Penobscot? Um, n- no. And, you know... Why is the, that? The, well, there's, there's an interesting thing, a, a dynamic that I, I was looking at uh, for the Maliseet. And for some reason, the distribution of tribal members is such that, you know, 50% of the members are up in Arista County. And then they have a very large uh, proportion of tribal members down in the Portland area. So the caseload was at the extremes of I-95, which made it a challenge from a court perspective on how to deal with those those cases. We couldn't ask people down in the Portland area to bring their case up to Holton for, for a court hearing. So what we actually did in the process of, of getting another legislative fix, which uh, actually regarded the right for the, the Maliseets to have a court, was to implement uh, the possibility of having uh, essentially a traveling court so we could hold Maliseet court anywhere in the state. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, so yeah, yeah. In, in response to your question about why aren't they in Penobscot court, geographically it doesn't make sense, and the logistics of it don't make sense, oddly enough. Um, but there may come a day when, when and we have that right. It's, uh, yeah, it's in the legislation that, 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 that says. Yeah. And in the inter, uh, intergovernmental agreement between the Maliseets and, and the state of Maine, it does clearly state that they can use other tribal courts, but just logistically it hasn't worked out. Uh, and as the director of of this court at this time, I also need to be aware of the resources and how how that would get paid for. Unfortunately, it comes down to dollars and cents from my perspective sometimes. But I think there's a willingness. Uh, there is definitely a possibility, and um, you know we're looking potentially at bringing in um, more judge time, if that makes sense, to handle what we project to be greater caseload. So that that might be a nice fit for for other tribes who who want to use our court. So we don't do anything jointly with uh, any of the other tribes uh, right now, um, court-wise? No, no, I mean, not, not officially. or workshops? Or oh, I mean, we work very closely together. Uh, as I said, especially on, on tribal state relations stuff, uh, we were just at a meeting down in Augusta, and, and the director of the Pesmaquoddy Court, Ed Nichols, um, was there, and, and so, were, uh, so was the police chief from up there. And so on, on that regards, in terms of moving our courts in sort of a unified direction, yeah, we work very closely together. And there's always information sharing. Um, but in terms of transferring cases back and forth, we don't, we don't really do that, again, to, just because of the geography, the distances. Hmm. I just kind of... When we, when we first discussed the Indian child welfare situation and when those uh, Indian children were being taken away from uh, Holton Band. Mm-hmm. And uh, we talked about the uh, tribal courts hearing those cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had many meetings about this with the Attorney General's office and the mm-hmm. other tribes. Uh, and, and the solution was reached that, okay, you know, mm-hmm. you can use these tribal courts. And I, I guess I'm sort of um, uh, kind of a bit surprised mm. that, the, that this isn't, uh, isn't happening. And um, I wonder if they had ever, if there's ever a, uh, a, a, a case where they did actually use uh, the uh, Passamaquoddy Court or the uh, Penobscot Court. Um, 
I can't pinpoint a specific case, but I know there have been um, <clears throat> there have been some some cases that involve um, <clears throat> let's say a, a maliceate mother and a Pesmaquoddy father. <clears throat> Excuse me. So they're they're able to weigh in that way. Um, but in terms of a pure maliceate case being heard in Penobscot court, no, no, <clears throat> I can't think of one. No. What about Passamaquoddy? I think the <coughs> Passamaquoddy court may be considered to be a little closer. Um, the other thing that we have to be careful of, which um, you probably know better than than anyone, is that um, you know the state naturally assumes that all the tribes in the state of Maine are the same. When in fact there are some distinct cultural differences that on any given day can play out differently in court. So that you know that that's something that that I'm probably sensitive to and would have to be uh, very clear on if we were going to handle a malice case. I guess I'm, I'm you you, lo you <coughs> lost me when you said <clears throat> um, could play out differently. What what did you mean by that? Well, I mean if if you look at um, relations or parties that should be involved I think, uh, and this this may be my own perspective, but something I think we all need to be aware of, that um, the Penobscot Nation may have stronger feelings about individuals being involved in, in the placement of a child um, compared to the way the Maliseets may see who should be involved in a case. Uh, there may be cultural practices or customs or traditions um, that need to be adhered to. Um, that that I, as a non-native, as a judge who is non-native, and as a Penobscot court, may not understand fully. So I think we would need to be very aware that if a malice case was in held in Penobscot court, it's only held in Penobscot court in the sense that it's in the Penobscot Exa building. Exactly. exactly. So that's that's something that would still need to be worked out. Yeah. I don't think the the state quite understood that there would be those kind of dynamics. Yeah. So we understand that there are different dynamics in uh, <coughs> different tribal communities and different court systems, but there is that um, opportunity. They can, they can do it if they so wish, uh, I understand, and they really haven't uh, pushed that yet. Um, but there is that opportunity. And it just seems to me that there is a lot more room for more cooperation between everyone, between the tribes and the state. Um, do you have... Any last comments? No, I'm. I'm. You're finished. I totally, <laughs> totally agree with you. Uh, okay. You know, I think it's only to the benefit of all parties involved that we do um, work together on these issues. Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Loring. You've been listening to Wabanaki Windows. The music for our show is by w Ralph Richter. Track called "Little Eagles" from his CD Dreamwalk. I want to thank my special guest, Stephen Brimley director of the Penobscot Nation's Tribal Court uh, for agreeing to be on the show, and uh, the, my engineer, Amy Brown. And please join us next month for another Wabanaki Windows. <laughs>